You're listening to Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a podcast of the Aegis Trust with me, James Smith. It's very simple. Mr. Miloradovic is in the process of leaving a peace agreement. Parties leave peace agreements when they believe that the benefits outweigh the costs. Amir Solyagic, director of the Srebrenica Genocide Memorial Center. What should be done is for countries such as Germany, United Kingdom, United States, to ensure that at this stage, early on, Mr. Dodik and all those who follow him are aware of the steep price that they will be paying down the road should they decide to continue this course of action. Very simple. Whether it's economic sanctions, which I believe at this point would be enough to cripple whatever effort he's trying to mount, or also at this point a symbolic military presence, literally symbolic. Welcome to Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a three-part podcast by the Aegis Trust, an organisation that works to prevent genocide and build peace through education. I'm James Smith and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Aegis. Episode 3 Solutions In the first episode, we learned about Bosnia's increased risk of return to armed violence following a threat from Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik to break the Dayton peace accords by re-establishing the army of Republika Srpska, the army responsible for genocide at Srebrenica in 1995. In the second episode, our contributors explained how the complex constitution formed by the Dayton Peace Accords has become an obstacle to Bosnia's progress. They also provided a wider context for the present crisis, unpacking some of the motivation for Bosnia's problems being ignored or exploited by politicians. In this third and final episode, we consider what the solutions might be both for preventing an immediate explosion of violence and for diffusing the fear, hostility and unresolved wounds of the past which make conflict possible in the first place. That long-term work will be far harder, though, if Bosnia is plunged back into armed conflict in the coming months. So we'll start this episode by considering the steps just suggested by Amir Solyagic. Sanctions and a symbolic military presence. Noting Russian support for Republika Srpska, I put it to Amir, if Russia doesn't cooperate with sanctions, how effective will they be? James, one phone call from Berlin. You know, Germany shutting down whatever it is economically doing in Republika Srpska. UK shutting it down. US shutting it down. Blacklisting not only Milorad Dodik, but people around him. Most importantly, blacklisting their businesses or people who are close to them, preventing them from doing business anywhere outside the Republika preventing Milorad Dodik from taking loans internationally or in the open market. That's it. Haven't American sanctions already been placed on Dodik, though? Well, so far, um, the sanctions which were imposed on, on the Boston Serb leadership have not been effective because in most cases, Dodik and the others, they don't have any businesses or property in the U.S. But blocking bank accounts of uh, Boston Serb uh, companies close to the state, close to Milorad Dodik, 
and especially those companies which are in the ownership of Dodik and his family, would definitely create a huge pressure on him and on the Serbian government. Dr. Hikmet Karcic, genocide scholar and senior researcher at the Institute for Islamic Tradition of Bosniaks in Sarajevo. So I think the best case scenario is if the EU and the US decide to do what they did in, in 1998 and 1999, and that is to impose sanctions and bring in troops and basically stop all finances of the Bosnian Serb leadership and entity. And two, three months of sanctions will basically stop. Second thing, Germany can remove all investments from the Bosnian Serb Republic and that would be enough pressure for Dodik to back down and to step down, basically. So that would be the best case scenario. The worst case scenario would be to have a status quo, which wouldn't change anything, but would prolong the whole entire crisis. And to be honest, Dodik won't stop here. Bosnian Serb financial interests in the UK could also offer valuable leverage. Here's Amir Soljegic again. And when he refers to RS, that's Republika Srpska, the Bosnian Serb part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The last loan Dodik took out was at the London Stock Exchange. So, for instance, London Stock Exchange shutting him down. And he took this huge loan um, of 300 million euros. And his inability, for instance, to pay back the debt would have long-term consequences for, for the RS. There are ways to pressure these guys. Kicking them out of SWIFT, for instance. Phew! That would be the end of it. Half of this country, I mean, more than half of this country lives from remittances, including yeah. Serbs. So inability to send back money from Germany to RS will spell the end for Miller. So. A lot can be achieved, Soligit suggests, if there's political will. It's amazing to me how little can achieve how much without people seeing it. This is literally a matter of will. And it's a matter of will to not be liked by some people, by a very small number of people whose lives and businesses and careers depend on Milorad Dodik. And there aren't very many of those people. Sanctions against members of the Bosnian Serb Assembly who voted for uh, the establishment of Bosnian Serb parallel institutions, withdrawing visas, uh, freezing their assets. There are also Bosnian Serb interests in the EU. All of these guys, for all of their nationalism, uh, have property in the EU. Their children are at the European universities. They're not in Vladivostok. They're not in Rostov-on-Don. They are in Germany. They are in Austria. So uh, just cutting these links off would be more than enough. And I'm not even saying that ordinary people should be punished. You know, this, this, should, this should be precise, targeted sanctions at business and political entities that are threatening another wave of violence. And God only knows what kind of violence that would be in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Dr. Yasmin Mojanovic, political scientist and analyst of Southeast European and International Affairs, would like to see much stronger US leadership in this area. In the short term, a robust sanctions regime against not just Mr. Dudik, but the entirety of his inner political circle, and as well as all uh, kind of enabling factors um, in the RS entity, a sanctions regime which would be modeled on essentially what the United States uh, used versus Iran, which is to say something that will also force the hand of the European Union, even if it does not join the sanctions regime, to cut off its commercial and financial dealings with this government. Alongside sanctions, what form should an international peacekeeping presence take? Amir Soljegic. 
Right now, we have 700 international troops in Bosnia and Herzegovina. A NATO member, battalion-sized unit deployed in Bosnia would serve as a deterrent. Yasmin Mijanovic again. U4, the still existing European uh, security force on the ground, should move the majority of its troops to the strategically important Bučko corridor to functionally prevent any meaningful steps at secession. And uh, we should also make it very, very clear to uh, Mr. Dodik's supporters and benefactors and patrons in Belgrade that in the event of any kind of serious security crisis in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Belgrade will be held liable politically and otherwise by the political West because they are fundamentally what stands behind everything that is happening presently and has been going wrong so very long in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Hikmet Karcic. You don't need a lot of troops to do this. You just need a few contingents of very effective rapid reaction forces to be placed in strategic areas, just like in 1985 and 1986. So Brško, Tuzla, Zenca, Sarajevo, or even just Brško and Tuzla would be enough to send a message saying that NATO is serious about Bosnia. Because what we feel right now is that we are being abandoned once again. We feel that we are being punished for for something which, honestly, we did not do. We didn't impose the Dayton Peace Accords. We didn't sign it. And so entire generations of Bosnians who are already frustrated with the lack of jobs, with the lack of education, healthcare, and so on, are right now, again, being in the same positions as their fathers were 30 years ago. So... For the sake of, of the future of this area, of this of these lands, of the people growing up here, and for the sake of security of, of Europe, it would be really good to finally put a stop to the whole idea and the whole question of greater states in the Balkans. Karcic has touched on it. Whatever happens in the present crisis, a whole generation of Bosnians deserves a better chance. A chance to overcome the toxic legacy of past violence and build a society where its repetition couldn't be so easily sparked. But how do you begin that task, when the past itself is such a painful burden? Tatiana Milovanovic works with Velma Saric of the Post-Conflict Research Centre in Sarajevo. They're at the forefront of peace-building work with young people in Bosnia today. A couple of things that I've seen, I've noted as worrying when it comes to the whole notion of Bosnian identity, is that even with young people who are, you know, up for, in a way, building this Bosnian identity, there's this need to then almost denounce all of the history, almost forget everything that has happened in the past as being the only way to move forward. That to me is a very worrying trend because even if we do all that and we, you know, kind of forget what has happened in the 90s or even before the 90s and forget all these ethnic groups, if we can, I feel we would still be teaching the wrong or, or sending the wrong message. And that is that in this society, we cannot build real tolerance and understanding between groups who might think differently or believe in different things when it comes to religion and that we cannot cooperate in this house of a country if we're not you know, all thinking with one brain and we're Bosnian and nothing else matters. My late friend, the Lithuanian Holocaust survivor, Valdemar Ginsberg, once said, what is not acknowledged cannot be healed. I put it to Tatiana that for Bosnians, this applies to the atrocities of the Second World War and to the conflict and genocide of the 1990s too. 
Exactly. And I mean, on one hand, being a young person who's grown up in this country, I can understand where some of these young people are coming from, because unfortunately, even up till today in Bosnia, we don't have a history curriculum that touches upon what has happened in the 90s that is uh, shared throughout our schools. So there is no one unified history curriculum for our kids and our, or our teenagers to really learn about what has happened. So they learn by examples from their parents who might be war veterans or victims, from their communities that might also have been very much impacted by war. And so obviously, as you grow up in an environment like that, you're very much confused and frustrated. And in, at some point, all you want is just to let that go. And so obviously, the worry now, it won't be possible, obviously, for our country to move into any sort of bright future if we you know, opt out for the um, easy option in a way of just putting it under the carpet. Because as history has taught us, it does, it does. It always comes out. And unfortunately, it comes out in the worst possible way. I'm a great admirer of the work of the Post-Conflict Research Centre and its founder, Velma Sharich. I had the privilege of attending the PCRC's launch in Sarajevo more than a decade ago. I asked Tatiana what had drawn her to this field and to work with Velma at such a young age. The moment that struck me personally the most and made me actually realise that this is something relevant to work on was when I was supposed to meet a young guy from Sarajevo, where I'm living currently, who's been wounded in the war as a small baby. His mother was killed and he was wounded and he still has health issues because of that. And before I met him, everyone told me, you know, he's, he's afraid in a way to meet you. Me coming from a, an ethnic group that ultimately killed his mother. He's afraid to meet you and he's not sure how this will go. He was not afraid of, of meeting me because I was going to be violent towards him. He just didn't know how to communicate properly with me without letting any of those grievances that he personally has float up to the surface. Short a while later, we were drinking coffee. Uh, everyone was nice. We were eating desserts and, and everything was perfect, of course. But I've seen in this young man the process somehow that it takes for young people to come out of this ethnic shell that we're born into, that we don't ultimately choose, how difficult it can be, but on the other hand, also how the number of young people who even get a chance to come out of their shells is very little. Um, not because they don't want to, mostly because they don't know better and they're not given a chance to think differently. And so this was kind of what motivated me to start my work with PCRC. Not to say there hasn't been other organizations who've been doing this work before PCRC as well, but I've decided they're the, they're the way for me. Alongside her work at PCRC, Tatiana is also Associate Editor at Balkan Discourse, an online platform which gives a voice to young people in Bosnia. Its work has a striking similarity to peace education conducted by the Aegis Trust with young people in Rwanda, where a million people were murdered in the genocide against the Tutsi just a year before the genocide at Srebrenica. Here's Tatiana again. So the, the way Balkan Discourse was actually started, it was started through one of the, the first projects that PCRC had. It's called the Ordinary Heroes Project. And we went back looking for stories of people who saved or helped someone during the, the times of war and genocide. 
who they have not known or met before, who was usually a different religious or ethnic group. We created some documentary movies with these stories and a big photographic exhibition. And we went on the road and took it to 30 plus communities throughout Bosnia. And we went there, presented young people with these stories. We created a short kind of educational curriculum to follow this, uh, finding ways to discuss these stories um, in a way that's appropriate for young people. But then what usually tends to happen is, you know, when young people hear these stories, everyone is like, oh, but I have, you know, my dad was in a concentration camp during the war and his neighbor who was, you know, a different ethnic group helped him. Or my mom used to give, you know, cookies or humanitarian aid to this one family, you know, all these stories. So we were like, we, we need to find a way to record these and document these. But we also realized that young people don't necessarily have the skills to research and document and write all this that they're supposed to do. And so now Balkan Discourse is a large multimedia journalistic platform that both offers training for young people from all around Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I think in the last five years, we've trained around 120 young people from Bosnia in basic, obviously, journalistic skills. And then a mentorship program for all of them that can last for at least a year or longer, where they go back to their communities, use all this knowledge that they have, and talk about the topics that are important for them. In most cases, they do come up with not necessarily always topics related to war and rescue, but usually, you know, positive stories from their communities that most of our big media and yellow press print don't really care about. We've noticed that by giving young people this sort of space and then also promoting, publishing their articles, kind of putting their names out there, helps a lot of them as well with career building. And it really does show them that someone somewhere does care about what they have to say and how they have to express themselves. Does the current situation with the heightened tension change people's views of these stories of heroes? Does it cause people to lose hope? Or are these stories perhaps more important now? Emphasising, for example, to Bosniaks that not all Serbs were perpetrators. Tatiana answered my questions by telling me about a new exhibition just launched by PCRC. We've actually just had another event for a project that's called Sarajevo Camera Kits. And it's also a very specific project because right after the war, actually, a Scottish photographer, Chris Leslie, came to Sarajevo and went to the orphanage Bielave here in Sarajevo. And he had photography workshops with kids from the orphanage. And so now 25 years after he works with PCRC. We developed some of those old photographs done by the kids in the orphanage. And he also went out and found some of them and took pictures of their lives now and captured the stories of their lives now. So why I'm mentioning this is because we opened this exhibition last week in, in Sarajevo City Hall. And everyone that attended the exhibition opening, but also people online were struck by kind of the power of these images, because you could see they were very raw images of destruction in Sarajevo back in the 90s. We've seen through feedback from people, we do need, unfortunately, these almost raw reminders of what it was like almost in the 90s as a way to start a discussion on how important it is for us to preserve what we've managed to build so far. 
obviously what we've managed to build so far is not perfect in any way. It has a lot of space and potential for reform and changes, but at least right now we're at a space where we can do these reforms. If we go back to the place we were in the 90s, we're not going to be able to do any of that. And so I don't want to seem crude, but it almost feels like reminding people that, you know, all these stories were brought out of destruction and horrible things and, and war, war crimes and genocide. This reminder is necessary now. It's, it's difficult that it is still necessary, you know, 26 years after. But we've seen that people and our audiences react very, very good with it and very positively. And I do have to say that even though in our work, we've seen that people react very well when they're in a way presented with personal stories. Storytelling to build empathy and critical thinking is at the heart of the Aegis Trust's peace education methodology in Rwanda, where it's proved so successful, it's now built into the national school's curriculum. Here, Tatiana is describing precisely the same rationale at work in Bosnia. For the sake of future generations and peace, this shared vision between Rwanda and Bosnia desperately needs expanding and resource. Everyone is sort of tired of hearing a we and they and all of that. But when it's, you know, a human face in front of you and a story that follows, you really don't connect to their ethnicity, background or religion. You Mm. connect to that story that's behind all of that. And you'll find, you know, similarities in your life, in your neighbor's life, in your mother's life. And that's what will stay with you. We're not, you know, talking maths and physics here. (laughs) We talk about very, very simple life values of, you know, respecting and loving yourself, loving your neighbors, your friends, trying to build up empathy within people, which we unfortunately all lack at some point in our lives. Targeted sanctions and peacekeepers are needed to prevent bloodshed now. Ultimately, however... A Bosnia at peace can only be achieved by Bosnians themselves. There's no such thing as a peace that's imposed from the outside. In 1995, the Dayton Peace Accord stopped the fighting, but set the divisions of that war in stone. What people like Velm and Tatiana are doing is giving young Bosnians the tools to look past that stone to the road ahead, to the course they want to set, regardless of any politicians who might stand in their way today. Tatiana again. We've seen that people are still very much interested and more interested in talking about stories like that than they are talking about Dodik and what he does or what his son and daughter do. And seeing that response from people does fuel us to keep doing what we do. I have Mm. to be honest, it can be a very frustrating job at times and especially coming from civil society organizations where there's a lot of insecurity and instability in our work as well. That's what fuels us and gives us hope that as heavy and as worrying the current political crisis is and all these threats we have, there are still people on our side that will be ready to fight fight for peace instead of the other way around. 26 years ago, I wasn't at Srebrenica, but I very clearly remember the genocide happening. In July of 1995, with my brother Stephen, we were about to open what became the UK National Holocaust Centre. 
We were building that memorial as a warning from history when genocide against the Tutsi happened in 1994 and again in 1995 against Bosnian Muslims. Conducting the interviews in this podcast series, it's been a shocking experience to hear and recognise those same warning signs again. This time, though, it's not coming as a surprise. We've seen what can happen with this ideology and this kind of leadership. And this time, with targeted sanctions, peacekeeping and education, there's an opportunity to get it right. There needs to be a clear statement from the EU, from the United States and from the UK that efforts to break Bosnia and Herzegovina apart are not going to be successful. There needs to be a clear rejection of Serb nationalism and Islamophobia and a promise to stand with and learn from the survivors of the Bosnian genocide. The last word here, the final word in the series, goes to Emir Soljagic. It's an appeal to us, to you and me. For people who are listening to this, if I may, just um, and wondering what they can do, call your MPs, call your congressman, call your senator, whoever you know, and tell them what's going on and tell them that we don't want to end up on CNN. All right, there's a, there's a curse in, in Bosnia, may your house end up on CNN. We don't want to be part of any international agenda. We want to share in the prosperity and peace of this part of the world, and we we're fully entitled to it. And we can contribute. And in that regard, if anyone out there is wondering what they can do, call your MP, call your MEP, call your congressmen, call, call your senators and tell them what's going on and press it upon them that the time to act is now, not six months down the road. You've been listening to episode three of Peace at Risk in Bosnia a three-part podcast by the Aegis Trust, an organisation that works to prevent genocide and build peace through education. For more information about Aegis and its work, please visit aegistrust.org. That's A-E-G-I-S trust.org. The music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4 international licence, is Marais, composed by Kai Engel. This series has been produced by Richard Newell and David Brown with series consultant Felicity Finch. Special thanks go to our contributors Amir Soljagic, Tatiana Milovanovic, Hikmet Karcic and Yasmin Mijanovic. My name's James Smith, founder and CEO of the Aegis Trust. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for listening.